Well, good morning, everybody. Hadn't the worship been splendid this morning? Would you put your hands together and let's just praise the Lord one more time. Amen. Good morning to everybody at Hillcrest. Great to see everybody today. It's a beautiful morning. Temperatures don't feel quite so bad this morning. Everybody's come into the house of the Lord feeling a little bit less oppressed today, and we're thankful for that. And we know the same is true over at our Spanish Trail campus. So all of you Spanish trailers, we love you. Appreciate every single one of you. In fact, let's just welcome everybody to church this morning. Nine Mile Spanish Trail, online, Facebook Live. It's incredible. And so we're so thankful to have so many people take part with us in worship and in the celebration of praise and then learning deeply, digging deeply uh, from the Word of God, which is an act of worship. Did you know that? Did you know that listening to the sermon is an act of worship? So listen up. I've got a message coming up in Acts in two or three weeks on the danger of sleeping in church. Somebody say amen this morning. <laughs> Guy fell out of a window and died when he slept at church. And so there are inherent dangers, but we'll get to that in the, when the time is right. It's one of my title the message, and so you've got a preview, so don't miss out. We're in Acts chapter 19 this morning, and so take your printed copy of God's Word if you have one like me, or if we've got an electronic version like Brad had out a little while ago, then power it up and be finding the book of Acts, the history of the early church. The title of today's message is Ministry by the Book. And as we continue in this study called Sent, which we're looking at the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, we're going to look for a few minutes this week and next on the subject of a textbook ministry, the real deal, a ministry that's operating at full throttle, one of the most important cities in the ancient world. I don't have to tell you uh, that we live in a day where people tend to, want to, uh, tend to want to live what we call the good life, but they don't want to have to make much of an investment to have it. Uh, this generation wants the good life handed to them on a silver platter. We want wealth without work. Isn't that right? We want health without exercise. Amen or oh me. Uh, we want healthy children without parental involvement and parental discipline. We want spiritual power without spiritual investment. You know, one of the great myths in the world today is that you can arrive by taking a shortcut. It is not true. You won't get anywhere by taking a shortcut, whether that's financially or in relationships in your life or in terms of the development. Man, life just requires hard work and involvement. And so beware of the danger of believing you can shortcut your way to personal, professional or spiritual success, and that's true when it comes to a church's ministry as well. Ministry is one of those things I'm still very old school about. I, I don't think that ministry really from a biblical perspective has changed much over the last 2,000 years, though we're seeing a lot of very unusual things taking place in ministry these days. I still believe in a ministry by the book. Some things are better old school. Back in the day, I was uh, exercising down the road at one of our local gyms, and there was a guy I got to know. He was in his mid to upper 60s, and he looked like he was about 42. He's an African-American man, and he was ripped. And he was like, he did this most every day I saw him in there. He stood about six foot five, 
probably weighed about 275 pounds, could pick me up by the nape of my neck if he'd have wanted to. And there was a young guy came in one time with this book, had all these newfangled exercises, and he was doing some of the strangest things that you could imagine. And I noticed my friend kind of standing off the distance, just watching, just standing still and watching this guy. And at one point, he just started to shake his head. And I went over to him, and I said, I take it you don't agree with those newfangled exercises that he's doing. He said, brother, I'm old school, old school. He still did things according to the book. And that's true for many areas of life. Sometimes the best ways are the old ways. And we have a terrific example of that when it comes to ministry at the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey, specifically his campaign in the ancient city of Ephesus. Now, as we connect with Paul here, we find him about the halfway point, or a little bit less than that, in this third of three missionary journeys that are recorded in the last half of the book of Acts. He'd set out several weeks earlier from his home church in Antioch of Syria, just north of Jerusalem, and he'd gone back into the region of South Galatia, north and west, revisiting those churches that he had actually established on his first missionary journey. The city in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. This was the third visit that Paul had made to that region, and he's very concerned about those believers strengthening and growing in their faith. Once he'd finished there, he went into the adjoining region, the Bible says, of Phrygia, and maybe did some new spade work there. Maybe some churches had already been founded there. But the Bible says that the third missionary journey begins with this ministry in South Galatia and Phrygia. And then once done, he goes into the region known as Asia and settles at the marvelous city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a city that Paul had visited at the end of his second missionary journey. That's a passage we looked at last week. It was actually the last stop on missionary journey number two, and it's a very brief visit in which he leaves hurriedly to get back to Jerusalem. We assume that he was in a hurry to get back for one of the feasts, either the Passover or Pentecost, but he promised that if the Lord was willing, he would return. I think he'd always wanted to have a lingering ministry in Ephesus because of the kind of city it was. Very important city. One of the most significant commercial and religious centers in the ancient world. It was located in the province of Asia. It's in modern southwestern Turkey. And it was the third or fourth largest city of that day. Population of somewhere between three and 400, 500, maybe 1,000 people. So it was massive in terms of its size. And as Paul came into the city, the first thing that he would have seen would have been the city's iconic landmark, which was known as the Temple of Artemis. Sometimes she's known as Diana, the Roman name. And that was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis. What the Empire State Building is to New York City, what the Golden Gate Bridge is to San Francisco, what the Gateway Arch is to St. Louis, the Temple of Artemis was to the great city of Ephesus. It looked a lot like the Parthenon. 
But for those of you that have seen the Parthenon in Athens, the temple of Artemis was four times larger than the Parthenon. I mean, it was just huge to imagine a building of that size and scope. So Paul would have come into Ephesus and once again have been reminded of the great lostness of the world, the great pagan idolatry of the world. And as the song said a moment ago, he would have been reminded that Ephesus was a heathen city. The word heathen just means a lost place, a place that's never heard of Jesus Christ, overwhelming in its lostness. And that, of course, was Ephesus, as it was for most of the cities of the ancient world. Paul's Ephesian campaign would be the most exciting time of his life. There'd be a lot of fruit that would be produced there, but he'd also have a lot of pain. He would speak later on of having fought ravenous beasts while he was there in Ephesus. And so it was a fruitful time, but it was a painful time, extreme highs and extreme lows. He would stay there for nearly three years, the longest single stay that the Apostle Paul ever had in any one city is right here on the third missionary journey in the city of Ephesus where he would be there for nearly three years in a very concentrated form of ministry. And the reason that's true is, I think, because the Lord gave him such a great harvest. Paul worked hard, he invested hard, he invested broadly, and the Lord gave him great souls in a church that was beginning to flourish and flower, and I believe the gospel was actually spreading outward from Ephesus in much the same way it had been spreading outward from the city of Antioch. And I think that the summary passage we probably need to look at first before we start here in verse 1 is actually at the end of the passage, which is in verse 20 of Acts 19, and here's what it says. So the word of the Lord continued to what? Increase and prevail mightily. And you know why that's true? Because Paul's not a novice when it comes to ministry anymore. You know, when he first got started, he'd ne- and he'd never done a missionary tour before, and so a lot of this was new. And he'd had to learn a lot of it by trial and error on the job training, but he's an experienced vet now. He's a veteran of the mission field. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he bases his ministry there in Ephesus on two very important things. You know what they are? The Word of God on the one hand and the power of the Spirit of God on the other. And that, brothers and sisters, is by any definition doing ministry by the book. He's not trying to be creative. He's really not trying to be innovative for that matter. He's basing his ministry by the book, by the Word of God, and leaning heavily against the Spirit and the power that can only come from the Holy Spirit. That's ministry by the book. And whenever ministry is being done that way, whether it was in Ephesus 2,000 years ago or whether it's at Hillcrest in in the year uh, 2018, there are three very important questions that are always addressed by that kind of ministry in any given community. Now, when I started preparing this message, As of last Thursday, I'd intended to cover all three of these questions today. By yesterday morning, I was full up, and I hadn't even finished the first question. So we're going to make this a two-part message, and if you want to know the other two questions, then you'll have to come back next week in order to get them. But today, I just want to look at the first question that always is addressed when a ministry is functioning according to the book, and that is this question. As it deals with people, we ask the question, are you sure that you're saved. And I ask the question this morning for those of you that are in this place, are you sure that you've been born again? 
Because a ministry by the book is not afraid to confront people right where they are. We confront people with the reality of sin. We confront people with the reality of eternity and that everything is on the line when it comes to what you believe about God, what you believe about yourself, what you believe about redemption through the person of Jesus Christ. And we're not afraid to challenge people and to confront them with their sinfulness and to encourage them to repent and to turn from that sin and to turn to Jesus Christ in genuine saving faith. That's what Paul's not afraid to do. And we see it once again here in Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. Everybody ready to read? Say amen. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples, and he said to them, Do you, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Warning signals, bells, flashing sirens, six flags over Texas right there. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, well, into what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism, more waving red flags and sirens and whistles. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began to speak in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Now, let's just stop there for today, because if you were here a week or so ago, you know that this is a passage that's kind of similar to the passage just above it up in Acts chapter 18 that takes place between Aquila and Priscilla, ministers of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and this preacher man named Apollos. Apollos, of course, came preaching the Word of God, teaching the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures there in the synagogue, and he was full of enthusiasm and full of vim and vigor and was a captivating speaker. But there were some inadequacies in his understanding about the gospel and especially in his understanding about baptism. And here the same is true. There's a group of disciples, and I put that word in quotations because Luke doesn't say whose disciples they are actually. He just calls them disciples. There's a group of disciples here. Well, we know for sure that they're disciples of John the Baptist. So they'd been exposed to the teaching ministry of John the Baptist, and they had repented of their sins, uh, supposedly, in the way that John had been preaching it. They had physically or demonstrably turned away from sin, demonstrated that with a baptism of repentance according to the way John was teaching baptism at the time. But their relationship with Jesus is very unclear here. At best, if they have a relationship with Jesus, it's highly superficial because there's woeful inadequacy in terms of what they understand about Jesus. At worst, they don't have a relationship with Jesus at all. So they were disciples of John, but they really weren't disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, except perhaps in name only. Paul asked them a very important question about the Holy Spirit. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And their answer, of course, is an emphatic what? No, there's no delay. They said, no, we don't even know anything about the Holy Spirit. 
And so while it's possible, I suppose, that they could have been genuine believers, most are in agreement that they're likely not genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is assumed given the incompleteness of their understanding of the Holy Spirit and their incompleteness in terms of the fact that he hadn't possessed them. They lacked the Holy Spirit of God. Probably the better way to understand the spiritual condition of these 12 men is that they had been exposed to preaching. They'd been exposed to the preaching of John the Baptist or the disciples of John the Baptist, probably a better way to say that. And they had probably there in Ephesus, given that Paul had left Aquila and Priscilla behind when he went back to Palestine and to Jerusalem for that feast, he'd probably been exposed to some teaching about Jesus as well. But I think personally their, their understanding, their belief as it's called here, was more of an intellectual and emotional belief than it was a personal and transformative belief. Everybody knows the difference between the two, that it's possible to have some cognitive belief about Jesus And it's even possible to have an emotional response to the Lord Jesus Christ and not necessarily be saved. There are a lot of people who claim to be saved that have an incomplete knowledge of things that would lead to a genuine salvation and walk with the Lord. We all know people who are like that, people who associate with Christian disciples. There may be some people like that here in the room this morning. You have an association with Christ. You have an association with spiritual things. You have an association with other people who claim to walk in faith with Jesus Christ. Maybe you even claim to be a Christian disciple yourself. But in reality, truth be told, those same people may have never crossed over the bridge of genuine faith. In fact, there are many who study these kinds of things who estimate even that the majority of people who attend churches week in and week out have never legitimately been born again. The majority, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association one time estimated that it was over 70% of people who populated churches had never actually been saved. Now, if we take 70% of the room this morning, that cuts out a pretty wide swath. And I don't believe that's the case here, but I do see what those people are communicating because it's very possible to be what we call a cultural Christian. So you confront somebody, hey, do you have a personal relationship with Christ? I've been in church since I was born. That means absolutely nothing. Did everybody hear me say amen? That doesn't mean a thing. That just means that you've been in a, a, a building with a sign out front that said church of some kind. But just because you're actually present, I mean, that's like saying, you know, because I spend a lot of time in my garage, I'm a Mercedes-Benz. It's not the case. Salvation by association does not work. And it really doesn't matter what kind of faith your mother had or what kind of faith your father had. It doesn't matter what kind of office they served in the church. It doesn't matter how many times you even walk through the door of the church, healthy as that might be. That's salvation by association, salvation by heritage. And by the way, let me just say, while I'm ticking everybody off today, (laughs) that it doesn't matter how good you try to be in life. It doesn't matter how much money you give, and it doesn't matter how much you contribute to the cancer ward at the hospital. It doesn't matter how many times you serve at a soup kitchen, wonderful and good, as all of those things are. 
That's just salvation by addition. I'm going to do good things. I'm going to give up bad things, salvation by subtraction. None of that matters in the courtroom of a holy God. And that may have been the condition of these 12 men who are around spiritual things. But the reality is they are lacking, and I don't believe they'd ever truly been born again. They're like Nicodemus. Maybe they're like Apollos, assuming Apollos really hadn't been saved up to this point. That's even harder to determine. Maybe they're religious, but lost. And the Bible's filled with people who were just like that. It's very possible to be a religious person and not be saved. And that's why you have Paul writing passages like he does in 2 Corinthians 13. This is a great statement, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. And Paul encourages at the end of that letter. Now, again, Corinth is a prime example because this was a place with a lot of messed up people claiming to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he concludes his second and final letter, what does he say? First two words, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. Man, that is such a bold statement, isn't it? Do a self-examination. How many of you remember going to school and the worst words in the world, put away your materials, I'm giving you a pop test. Hated it. Everything went south after those words. Well, sometimes examinations are good, particularly when you apply them to yourself spiritually. And we've already established that the Spirit of Jesus Christ was not in these men who knew nothing of the Holy Spirit, nothing of his ministry. Paul confronts them and I think explains the gospel more completely bringing these men to faith, and then having believed, what's the next thing that happens? They were properly what? Baptized, not a baptism of repentance because they were ashamed of their sin, but along with that now comes a baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. Now it's Christian baptism, whereas before it really wasn't. They're baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And through that baptism, they confess their faith publicly in a crucified and de- dead and buried and resurrected Christ. And that's pictured in their baptism. And then something really dramatic happens. It's already happened once in the book of Acts. Back in chapter 8, Paul the apostle, after they've been baptized, lays his hands on them And he imparts to them the gift of the Holy Spirit. Through the laying on of hands, they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and then it's evidenced by everyone around them because they speak in tongues as a sign of the Spirit's presence, and they begin to prophesy truth about the person of Jesus Christ. Now, time's not going to permit us to fully dig into the phenomenon. I did this back when we were in Acts chapter 8. So you can go out online and listen to that message because it basically is dealing with the same thing. But you need to understand because there are a lot of people who are prone to teach from this passage and the one 
in Acts 8 and the one in Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit was given to the original disciples at Pentecost, these three passages from Acts, three isolated passages, are extracted and used to form basically an entire doctrine that teaches a two-stage approach to salvation. First, you receive Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, and then sometime later, after you've ostensibly prayed enough or consulted enough people with wisdom or read enough scripture, at some point later, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and that receiving of the gift of the Holy Spirit is always evidenced through speaking in tongues. How many of you have ever heard that teaching before and know somebody that believes that? I do too. But that's taking three obscure passages of Scripture and normatizing it. Let me ask you a question. In every act of salvation in the book of Acts, is there the laying on of hands of an apostle after the person is saved? Yes or no? No. In every salvation in the book of Acts, is there always a later reception of the Holy Spirit evidenced by speaking in tongues and prophesying? Yes or no? No. In fact, it only happens three times. That's it. And so these are isolated incidents. Now, obviously, we know why it happened in Acts chapter 2 to those original disciples when the Spirit had been given and fell on them in tongues of fire. You know why that happened? Because the Holy Spirit had never been given before. So that's an easy explanation. Nobody had been indwelt by the Holy Spirit in a permanent kind of way before, and so that's an initial coming at a massive feast for the purpose to set up the propagation of the gospel where 3,000 souls eventually would be saved that very day. The other event happens in Acts chapter 8 when the gospel for the first time, again a very significant first, goes into Samaria. Those dirty, stinking, low-life Samaritans, right? Nobody would have believed in Jewish circles that a Samaritan could possibly be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. So Peter the apostle goes up there after Philip had been preaching the gospel, once there had been this great scattering out of Jerusalem because of the persecution that had arisen from the uh, witness and execution of Stephen. People come to Christ in Samaria. There's a tremendous revival that happens in Samaria and when Peter goes up there, he meets many of these Samaritan believers who had trusted Jesus to save them. And what does Peter do? He lays his hands on them. And what happens to those Samaritan believers? They receive what? The gift of the Holy Spirit, evidenced by speaking in tongues. And you know why that was important? So that all of those Jews could see, okay, here's the deal. The gospel really is for all people. It really is intended to go to people who are not like us. The gospel really is meant for the whole world. And now we can leave, go back to Jerusalem and broadcast this to the larger church that the Holy Spirit has indeed been filled, or, or the Holy Spirit has been given, rather, to the Samaritans who are now filled with him. And we know it because the same thing happened to them and the same response happened that happened to us. And so let there be no doubt that a Samaritan can be part of the Christian community. And you see kind of the same thing happening here today. This passage doesn't mean that that's to be a normal experience for every single 
believer, these kinds of things happen sporadically and occasionally. And one thing you cannot do with God with respect to the book of Acts is put him in a box and say, this is the way God does it every single time. At least not in Acts. You can't do that because the Spirit is kind of unpredictable from place to place and according to people group or to the preacher or whatever the case might be. Today, one thing we know, we don't have any more apostles here today to lay hands on anybody. The only people that were laid hands or that did the laying on of hands in the book of Acts were who? Were the apostles. Those 12 guys are with Jesus in glory now, right? So they're not coming back to lay hands on anybody else, and they don't need to be here because that wasn't even the case for most of the salvation experiences that we have in Acts. Most people are saved. There's no apostle to lay hands on them, and they don't evidence their salvation or their receipt of the Holy Spirit by speaking in tongues. Today, one thing you can take to the bank is that if you know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, how many of you here today have trusted Jesus without a doubt to save your life? Would you shout amen this morning? Okay, I'm going to tell you something you don't have to wonder about or lose any sleep over. You have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it happened the very nanosecond that you got born again. Because Paul will make it very clear. I don't think it's in your notes, but you probably want to write down Romans 8 and verse 9. Listen to this. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. Everybody heard me say amen. So you can't say, I've got Jesus, but I don't have the Holy Spirit. Everybody hearing me say amen. Amen. You receive Jesus, you receive the Spirit of Jesus, who by definition is the Holy Spirit of God. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. So beware of making normal these fuzzy, isolated passages of Scripture in the Bible, taking them and saying, well, that's the way it's got to happen for all believers all the time. It is not true necessarily. And the reality is you always, when you're studying the Bible, you interpret the unclear, fuzzy passages in light of what is very clear in the Bible and unmistakable. Never the other way around, okay? So, the presence of the Holy Spirit is a sign that we belong to Jesus Christ. And the evidence of his presence, when the Spirit is in you, man, I'm just saying it ought to be obvious that he's in you. And so, the question Paul raises when he comes into Ephesus, have you received the Holy Spirit, which is another way, I think, of saying, are you sure you've been born again, is a valid question today. Are you sure that you're saved? Paul says, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Test yourself. And I think that today's as good a day as any to try and do that. There are three very important tests I think that any believer can apply to their life or any person for that matter. The first, and these are not in your notes, so you're going to need to write them down. The first is the conversion test. The conversion, can you pass the conversion test? You know what I mean by that? Can you, can you give a clear testimony about how you received Jesus Christ, about where and when you received Jesus Christ? When was it and how was it that you confessed your sins and you surrendered to Jesus Christ and you trusted him to save you and you committed 
to surrender your life to his leadership and to follow him as Lord. When did that happen in your life? Because you don't drift into salvation. It's a point in time act. Point in time, a sinner repents of his sin and the Lord forgives and the Lord receives the faith of that person who responds and the Lord adopts that person into his family as his child. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to know the exact time, minute, second, even the date for that matter, but you ought to know the time. You ought to know where you were. You ought to remember the event because last time I checked, salvation is a radical, cataclysmic, life-changing experience of grace where old things pass away and all things have become new. The Bible calls that being born again, and there ought not be any fuzziness about whether or not you were born again. You may not be able to remember when you were physically born. In fact, if you say you remember that, I'd like to have a conversation with you. But you can remember when you were born again. Sometimes you'll have occasional doubts about the veracity of that, the reality of that. All of us, I suppose, have struggled with occasional doubts at one time or another. But let me just say, if you're here this morning and you've wrestled and you've doubted for like 28 years, something is bedlam and bedrock. There's a problem somewhere because God does not want us to be shaky, fuzzy, or to hesitate about whether or not we are in reality one of his children. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Not hope that you have it, not wish that you have it, but that you may know that you have eternal life. Can you pass the conversion test? There's a second test, and we might call it the character test. Are you sure that you've been saved? Well, can you pass the character test? When you and I are physically born, we inherit many of the physical, even the emotional characteristics of our parents, our grandparents. The likenesses sometimes can be striking. I was in the house just the other day and was shocked to run, literally run right into my father only to realize I was looking in the bathroom mirror the whole time. Unbelievable. I had a good relationship with my dad, but it wasn't the best for a lot of reasons. And how ironic that God has created me to look just like him. So that every time I look in the mirror to shave, I am looking at a mirror image of my father. People who know my dad don't have to tell them who I am. They know who I am. And you get those mannerisms. Sometimes it's not physical. Sometimes it's emotional. Maybe you're a little hot-headed. She's just like her grandmother, right? Everybody remembers grandmama. Now you got it. And you've said all these years, I'm never going to be like her. Oh, yes, you are. And don't ever say never. So we have all of those kind of things courtesy of the family genome. Well, when you're born again, the same thing happens. Your character changes so that when others look at you, they ought to be able to see a resemblance to the heavenly father. Is there a resemblance? Do you resemble your heavenly father? 
Are you becoming Christ-like? Becoming like Christ is what we're about at Hillcrest. So that ought to be something that's obvious and witnessable. Oswald Chambers, who wrote the most popular devotional book ever, said this, the resounding evidence of the Holy Spirit in a person's life is the unmistakable family likeness to Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? And the freedom from everything which is not like him. That's a tremendous statement. The resounding evidence of the Holy Spirit in a person's life is the unmistakable family likeness to Christ and the freedom from everything which is not like him. The presence of the Holy Spirit in a person's life is a demonstrable presence. It's something that can be seen, something that's observable. Paul will couch it to the Galatians in terms of fruitfulness. Galatians 5, and 23, he speaks of the fruit of the Spirit, of the physical manifestation of the Spirit, obvious like luscious ripe apples hanging from a tree. Those things like love and joy and peace how you respond in unpredictable, hard circumstances. Patience, that's witnessable at Christmas time. Somebody say amen. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, kindness. Christians are just supposed to be nice people. Some don't act that way. Gentleness, kindness, faithfulness. Self-control. Preacher, I was doing pretty good until you got to that one. No, it's spiritual fruit. So if you go off half-cocked, it's hard to convince somebody that you're under the control of the Holy Spirit. Because the fruit of the Spirit is what? Self-control. That's right. Now you say, well, does that mean that I'm 100% perfect when I'm born again? What's the answer to that question? No, or we're all in big trouble, right? We all need to fall on our face today. No, we still wrestle with sin. We still struggle with sin. The guilt of sin has been forever removed from your life when you've been saved. But we all still struggle with the disposition to sin. We're still in the world. We're not in heaven yet. One of these days, we won't ever struggle with the disposition to sin anymore. But while we're here, we still do. And I tell you, I find it really encouraging that as in my own life, as I struggle with sin, I find it encouraging that when he was a mature believer, the Apostle Paul still referred to himself as the chief sinner. Isn't that amazing? He uses the present tense. I'm convinced of this very thing, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief, the worst He doesn't say, of whom I used to be the worst, and then we might understand it a different way. But no, he says, of whom I am chief, and he's a senior adult when he's writing that. So even late in his life, Paul was still wrestling with his sinfulness. But the thing about it is, are y'all still with me? Say amen. He recognized it, and he loathed it. 
He didn't jump into sin and say, hey, I've been saved. Man, I'm covered by the blood. I can do anything I want and get away with it. That's not what he said. How can we who have been delivered to sin live in it any longer? And yet he still sinned occasionally, but when he did, he always knew it, and it always repulsed him. And he was quick to get to God and apologize and seek forgiveness. What does change at salvation, you're not 100% perfect, but the desire to honor Jesus always changes when you've been born again. Can you pass the character test? And then finally, what about the commitment test? The commitment test. And by commitment, I just mean a commitment to obey Christ. This is really obedience. Jesus said, if you'll love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, the NIV says, you'll obey what I command. And if you look obedience up in the dictionary, it'll just define it as submitting to the authority of somebody else. And that's true. It's what you do with Jesus. Biblically, what is obedience? It's knowing and doing the will of God as it's revealed in the Word of God. That's why you got to know your Bible to live fully obedient life. 1 John 2 and verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know Christ if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a what? Anybody know? Is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That's strong language, very direct and pointed language where Paul is saying, here's how we know. Here's how we know. We keep his commandments. We do what he tells us to do. We obey him because our greatest desire now is to honor and glorify Christ who has changed us radically and give, given us hope for an everlasting future. So it's pretty obvious. Anybody that claims to know God is going to prove it by the fruitfulness of their life, their obedience to Scripture. Knowledge of the Bible is important, but you can know the Bible and not be saved. Having the right belief system is important. Listen, you quote the Baptist faith and message, but not be saved. Worship with God's people is important. But see, all of those things, important as they are, they don't mean anything apart from the fruit of obedience, which proves the reality of your new heart. All of us who live in a relationship with others should know that love is always something that's demonstrated. In the same way God demonstrates his love for you and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's an active, demonstrable love. Our Lord expects that to be flipped so that when we confess his name, it's obvious not only by what we say, but by how we live. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The conversion test, the character test, the commitment test. Are you sure you've been born again? In a day of easy believism, false positive Christianity, it's a legit question. And it's a question that ought always be asked and answered in the midst of a ministry done by the book. This is God's word, and let all who agree with it say amen.